everyone, and welcome to the Podcast of Power, a She-Ra and the Princesses of Power companion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Nero. And I'm the other host, Jane. Welcome to Season 2, everyone. We made it. We made it over the hump of Season 1, and now we're in uh, kind of a weird season. We are indeed. We finally made it into one of our two half seasons of the show. We're kind of just going to consider two and three the same season. It's much easier that way. Otherwise, we'd have to treat episode seven of season two as a season finale, which it just it just isn't. It just isn't a season finale in any way, shape or form. No, yeah, it's it's definitely not. And it's also just like it just makes more sense to kind of piece them together in that way. I feel like it was intentional that they were supposed to be one season. I'm not 100% sure why it got stretched out like that. But Netflix is a mysterious land of bonkers decisions. So probably something on their end. Yeah, some kind of weird arcane Netflix thing happened and they just had to split it in half. Um, before we get started... I wanted to shout out that our uh, someone made these great wood-burned uh, signs for us about, what, like, what was that, a month ago, a few weeks ago? Yeah, I think it was like three or four weeks ago. And they finally arrived. It's, it's hanging over here right by my desktop, so I just I just wanted to shout out uh, at woodburningspop, as uh, Jennifer on Twitter for making these great things. They are, they they look way cool. They really do. They're going to adorn our walls, and for this week, they're going to adorn the fun cover art for uh, this episode, so you can appreciate them just as much as we do. And speaking of the episode today, we're talking about season two, episode one, the Frozen Forest. Yes. Um, this episode is kind of going to be light on the spoiler zone, because I think there's a lot that happens in the episode, but ultimately it's it's mostly just table setting for the rest of season two. And in fact, season two itself just kind of feels like that due to how it was structured. Like, there's nothing really happens in season two. There's a lot of episodic-like adventures in season two, but nothing really culminates in anything. Yeah, they kind of it kind of ends up in this um, scenario really similar <clears throat> to the start of season one, where um, I wouldn't necessarily call it monster of the week, but it kind of falls into this very formulaic like, you know, the super pal trio does something and then the best friend squad has to react to it, that kind of thing. This very like push and pull antagonist protagonist thing going on that changes uh roughly halfway through the season but for now that's kind of where we're at um so it's not like a ton of like parallels and like interesting dynamics to really like dip into um but there is still quite a lot to talk about and the first thing i wanted to mention was the titular uh frozen woods looks uh pretty gorgeous there's a lot of really good uh, background painting there's a lot of good art in this episode um honestly um most of the art in the ep this episode is just leaps and bounds uh ahead of where it was uh at the end of season one like uh there's a couple of uh fight scenes in this episode and they are 
just dramatically, dramatically better. Um, the fight choreography is great. Uh, the force perspective, especially in the sim catcher fight, is amazing. Um, like, they did a great job with that. Um, so it's really nice to see them kind of, like, bring it to the, to the next level here um, at the start of the next season. Right, and I think we should talk a bit about this sim catcher fight that kind of opens the episode. We get... Uh all of the princesses smashing up some bots in the woods trying to stop their advance and after the the cold open uh we get sheer off fighting some bots and then catcher shows up um this fight scene is like it's so weird that this fake catcher fight looks so much better than the like climactic one at the end of uh the battle of bright moon there's a lot of really, really good action posing and, and you know, um, animation smearing. It's just, it's a much stronger fight overall. Um, and because it is so, you know, trivial at the end of the day, like, it's not actually, there's no stakes to this fight. It's just training. It's just a setup for some jokes, really. Um, it, it comes out looking better, I think. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Though I will say that... I feel like it does set up a little bit more than that. I think that largely it sets up, um, there's, there's sort of a weird dynamic going on, uh, with Light Hope, um, a little bit and the way that she kind of engages with, uh, Dora's past with Katra. Um, she definitely like, we've talked about it before. Light Hope is a little bit of a manipulative person, but she's also not, like, 100% aware of how manipulative she is. She's just kind of, like, trying to do her job or, like, her programming. And uh, in in doing that, she kind of... Uh, she She's kind of very, very, very manipulative about everything, and she'll, like, make Katra kind of behave in a way that's very specifically designed to get Adora's goat. Right. She says that the simulation was made uh, for total accuracy. Um, and it is scarily accurate, really. I mean, obviously she's pulling these both from Adora's memories and Katra herself, considering she was waltzing through the uh, the Crystal Castle not too long ago. But still, it is it is a, an extremely personal thing to use her as a training dummy, basically. Like, I, I really don't think it's all that conducive to a good training environment. No, I don't think it's necessarily great either, because, of course, the object of the training here isn't, like, to learn how to fight Katra. It's more like, hey, I really want to learn how to control my sword. But, of course, Light Hope is like, she's trying to kind of cut cut corners a little bit and just kind of like ah oh, well we'll we'll just do both of those at the same time for efficiency um not really how humans work um miss hope but uh a for effort i mean she admits she's still working on her uh what was it human inspiration protocols she's not very good at it no she really isn't um uh but uh, also with adora's not the only one who is uh training in this episode we also see the the sort of old horde team kyle rogelio and uh lonnie training against some 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 of the classic ar princess bots except the big one instead of being uh angela is now she 
Yes, a very scary-looking purple Shira with glowing golden eyes and a lot of spikes. Yeah, she, I think she's got her like battle armor from the the Battle of Bright Moon on and everything. Like she, this is a big scary Shira. Yes, only marginally taller than the actual Shira, really. Yeah, it's pretty uh pretty close to actual size. Um, there's a lot of that in this episode and the season in general, just kind of penduluming back and forth between Horde and Best Friend Squad. It's it's cert- I think it's the most even split the show gets probably. Um, maybe in season four it gets a bit more even as well, but that situation is different, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. Yes, very very different. Um, but to talk a little bit about like the Botchadora fight. First off, Kyle, once again, um, just not very good um, at his job, but he is trying his best, so we, we all appreciate Kyle. Katra is definitely getting... Uh, she's trying to play it very cool and very aloof, but she's got some deep, uh, deep, deep resentment uh, for Adora here, and um, like there's this really huge disconnect between how she's talking about um fighting Shira in this in this kind of instance she's very clinical about it she's very tactical she's very cool but when she's actually like fighting the Adora bot she is ripping it to pieces and is very aggressive about it so there's like she's trying to keep it together but she's got quite a lot of emotions roiling under the surface yeah, and sometimes when you're dealing with that, you can't help but have them just sort of peek through to the uh, to the surface there. Yeah, it's kind of a theme of this whole episode for Catra, actually. Um, and, dare I say, Catra's arc in general. Yeah, very true. Uh, before we move on, I also want to point out one more thing in this section of the episode, which is... That this is the first time we get a solid, like, chronological time scale between these episodes. Uh, Adora says she's been training for a month. So it's been a month since the Battle of Bright Moon. And this show never really has quite a solid chronology. It's very messy. It's very muddy. It could take place over, like six months it could take place over a year it could be two years like it's very very hard to say because there aren't that many signifiers of time passing um and there's always plenty of spaces between certain episodes that could be filled in with other stuff like this season especially because of the sort of episode adventure nature of it um there's definitely like spaces for time passing between these episodes more so than say season three or season five where things are much more tightly compacted in terms of like event uh events being close to each other yeah the chronology in the show is genuinely just it's kind of muddy and i think that's partially intentional there's i can think of one other instance where there's like a very clear and definite time skip but we can't really talk about that one that's quite spoilery but yeah generally they they don't do a good job of establishing like exactly how long any specific period is uh between episodes um we were talking a little bit before we started uh recording actually is it's kind of similar to like season one of avatar a little bit in the sense that like before they actually get 
the uh, the sort of established time frame of the Day of Black Sun, like before that. Um, it's all just kind of loose and nebulous. Like it could really take place over any period of time. But like once the desert episodes hit, it's all like a very strict timetable. Right. And this show never really has a timetable like that um, to lock it into anything. It's interesting. It's, you know, it's, it doesn't, I don't think shows need to have a hard chronology. Sometimes it can be good. Sometimes it can make things weird. Mm-hmm. Like thinking about the time scale of One Piece, like the first half of it is like, eight months or something and that's just why it's sort of wild to think about um, yeah I th- the second half is even more compressed i'm pretty sure the post time skip stuff in one piece takes place over like three months maybe even less it's it's pretty wild i did not know it was three months that is a lot of events to happen in three months yeah and those events lasted for a year and a half uh at one point so you know that's why time dilation is sometimes hard to figure out with long-running series like that yeah i should say so um so let's move on to a little bit more of the the sort of uh we once again we get parallel sequences kind of with the super pal trio and the best friend squad we see a meeting of the princess alliance kind of the first official meeting probably since well not not the first official meeting but the first on-screen official meeting since they reconvened at the end of the battle um and everyone is just being very very catty to each other in this uh scene here oh yeah like everyone's got a problem with everyone else but it's like they're the problems aren't big enough for anyone to like directly confront anyone but like everyone's kind of annoyed like the first thing that angela does when she gets in the room is go straight for cast throat it's really funny um like frosta is is interrupting uh you have mermista and perfuma have drama over the the mermista takes perfuma's seat and perfuma you can see her eye twitch once again there's lots of good eye twitches in this episode there really are of course as as usual natasa and spinarella are just minding their own business they 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 are just like we're too old for this we're not dealing with it um even swiftwin gets in on the action a little bit and he starts asking very pettily for a chair which to be fair he should have a chair but (laughs) the way he asks for it is very funny now what does a horse horse chair look like I mean, honestly, just, like, a coffee table, I'm imagining. Just, like, a low table that he's gonna just, like, sit on, and then his, like, horse legs are kneeling. Yeah, do you just rest the back legs, and then you kneel with the front legs? This is a conversation that many uh, famous philosophers and scholars have had all throughout humanity's grand history. Um, I don't know if it'll ever be decided, just like whether how a dog would wear pants. We simply don't know. We simply don't know until someone tries, and that day will be a day of reckoning for us all, really. It will be. Um, Let's talk about Glimmer and Frost, actually, because that is the kind of axis on which this episode spins. Yes, so the kind of core conflict of this episode, um, you know, pairing away all of the, like, horde stuff is that Frosta 
is suddenly um, part of the team and she is hanging out with people that she considers her friends and she's able to let loose and do like cool action hero stuff and she is 110% here for it. She is uh, she is our, our Fortnite gamer princess and she is here to uh, really just just go all out about it. She is more than excited uh, to be here. Unfortunately, uh, what this means is that she's mostly getting in the way of Glimmer and she's kind of throwing herself um, and overextending into danger a little bit more than she probably should. Which, of course, is are all things Glimmer has done in the past. She's always been the eager one to go out in the field and take the fight to the Horde. She loves to do cool action stunts and show off her neat powers. Like, as they say in the episode, they are very much cut from the same cloth, which is why they have conflict. Because when you meet someone who is so similar to you in so many ways, oftentimes you won't find a kindred spirit so much as you'll sort of see some of the aspects of yourself that you don't like kind of embodied in another person and you kind of see these things reflected back on you and you realize well maybe eh, i don't know about all this yeah and it's and it's kind of amplified um to be even worse when you know this is kind of the younger version of you right like glimmer has grown up um, emotionally over the course of season one. Um, I would say that like at the very beginning of season one, her and Frost are probably nigh identical in this way. But at this point in her character arc, she's gotten a lot more like focused, a lot more self-controlled. She tries to think before she runs into things. Um, so she looks at Frosta, who's kind of the kid version of her, and she's just like, She's annoyed and probably a little guilty and a little ashamed and like a little bit like just frustrated seeing someone act um, as recklessly as she did. And she even talks a little bit at the very end about how she feels like she was kind of becoming her mom a little bit and how she was treating Frosta. And it's like, yeah, oh, we've we've been there. We've all been there. Glimmer has outgrown Fortnite. That's cringe stuff for kids. God, yeah. Listen, Glimmer. Glimmer only plays uh, PUBG Apex now. Legends. Apex Legends. That's the that's the hot one. See, you know, Glimmer would play Apex because that's the one with all the cool characters in it. PUBG that's doesn't true. have any characters. That's true, and it's also based off the Titanfall Two universe, which is the good TF Two. She sees Wraith teleporting around and says, "Wow, I'm that. That's cool. I'm gonna play this character." Uh, just, just anytime you want to contact us about our gamer Shira head cannons, I'll be glad to tell you mine. Oh yes, um, we've we've both got plenty of those. Uh, send us an ask. At your own risk. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Super Pal Trio in this episode because there's a lot of fun scenes involving what I at once saw described as the quote-unquote gamer girl couch. Oh yeah. Where. They're just sort of sitting around and watching the the good guys fight these bots like it's a sporting event or a video game. Um, and just sort of judging the bots' uh, performance on that. And it's just, they're just very fun. It kind of reinforces Entrapta's, like, 
disconnect between experiments and the res- like the what those experiments are doing. Like this is just a stress test for cool robots. It doesn't really matter that they're fighting the princesses. Yeah, it's like for her she's she's very much like her and Scorpia both, I think a little bit are very disconnected from like the concept of like them actually hurting people. They're very much just like oh yeah this is just like fun watching the things we built go and you know try their best and they're just they just don't think about it you know entrapta has nine billion brain cells but they're only rubbed together when she thinks about building robots um (laughs) uh scorpia of course has the opposite problem yeah uh got no brain cells only spark happens uh when she looks at katra pretty much more or less and yeah like that that's sort of their starting point here where they just see it as like a fun game um i mean because the catra takes it a bit more seriously for sure she's actually looking at this like it's a you know a battle yeah she's actually very stressed out she's like clawing the side of the couch when things aren't going well um once again actually that's like a really good visual indicator of like she is trying really 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 hard in this episode to be like as collected and professional as possible but like her physical actions show how not that she is how not put together she actually is about all of it she's like she's doing her best and she's you know her voice is is her intonations are nice and level and and put together but everything physical about her is just like nope 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 and uh speaking of battle strategy Bo in this episode is the only one thinking more than like five steps ahead he's out here saying listen we're being swamped by these bots we can't just like keep protecting the control point we can't just keep protecting the whispering woods from these infinite bot spawns we have to figure out where they're coming from and how they're able to build so many of them why don't we capture one intact everyone else says i don't know that sounds kind of hard yeah they're just kind of like well why don't we just keep blowing them up it's Bo is as as per the usual he is one of the primary voices of reason and he is the best strategist they have like bar none um and he's like hey we should we should have a plan of some description (laughs) it's it's just it's very funny how like consistently in this show he'll just be like let's put together a plan and people will just groan like oh so we have to i mean we got glimmer over here as we said and always likes to leap into action before she thinks frost is the same way Mermista is very confident in her abilities. Uh, Perfuma has a lot of her own ideas about stuff. Like, it's it's hard to get these groups together. Adora, she's just uh, not bright and also very <laughs> focused on certain things. So, like, it's it's hard to pull these these guys together into a uh, into a cohesive unit. But when they do, it, it it quite it works quite well, as we see at the end of this episode. Which, interestingly enough sees the return of the like harmonious glow that they got at the end of battle of bright moon yeah i actually forgot that that comes up again in the show i was actually like under the impression that only happened like 
that one time, but it does apparently happen a couple more times, and it's it's interesting. Uh, that glow, we'll, we'll figure out what's going on with that glow later in the show. But for now, it's just like a, a sign of teamwork and, and togetherness. It's like, you know, like I said, harmony. Yes, very much a harmonious relationship. This episode introduces some fun new bots. The EKS units, which stand for Emily's kid sister. Yeah, slightly bigger than Emily. Pretty much, pretty large. Uh, they're in, they're like big old Beyblades that you can like fit like three people standing on probably. Yeah. And so the main crux of the the second half of the episode is is everyone trying to figure out how these work and fighting them. Um, I like these things designs. I'm always, I always like a good tripod. Um, and the the regular horde bots look okay. I like the spheres. I think the spheres look good and the like kind of rectangular walky bits but i'm a sucker for some classic you know sharp spider legs and a evil singular eye and just like a, a top shape it just it's a good shape to make an evil robot it really is uh i love i love the design a lot and also it's like it draws a lot i feel like they took a lot of inspiration for like the EKS bots and like kind of the whole concept of them from like the oh what was it called the Omnibot what was the bot from the Incredibles called I think it was the Omnibot uh I think so yeah man that thing looks good yeah that thing looks really good and they, they drew a lot of inspiration from that I think pretty clearly here um both in like design sensibilities and also just like the general concept of it like a learning robot that can like adapt to people's powers and try and take them out that way right it's just it's just a cool concept to make your your robots when when the show is 90 percent fighting different sorts of robots you have to mix it up at some points or else it's just it's just going to get stale yeah very very true they do a pretty good job of that i think generally speaking like we i don't feel like they ever overstay their welcome like we get it there aren't like a ton of robot designs but like they get swapped out regularly enough that like you don't super notice it right and the and, you know like uh the the show isn't necessarily too uh focused on big robot smashing scenes as the series goes on uh as 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 the 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 events go on i think there are fight scenes with more like varied opponents whether that be different horde troopers or like established characters and so they get to rely a little bit less on uh on these random horde bots for action sequences yeah exactly so it it all ends up working out pretty well i think in that regard i guess there is there's one other thing um so there's a few yeah let's talk about this kind of wrap up to this episode because there's a few moments that are very interesting um so first we see Katra visit Shadow Weaver in her prison cell to just have a, you know, nice cathartic yell at her, which certainly works. Yeah, it seems like it works really well. Definitely, definitely doesn't cause Catra more problems than it solves. Not at all. Yeah, it's... It's just uh, it's just an interesting place to see Shadow Weaver as a character, someone who has always always been positioned above people. 
um, just completely and utterly powerless, and yet not entirely powerless over Catra, obviously, because of their past relationship. Like, Shadow Weaver is still someone who holds a lot of sway over Catra as a person. Yeah, like, the thing the thing is, right, so Shadow Weaver is very much in Catra's head. Like, she lives there rent-free 24 hours a day, and the problem with that is that even though Shadow Weaver has been functionally depowered, you know, she's she doesn't have any ability to do basically anything. She's at her kind of her lowest point, but like she can still very easily get um get into into Catra's head. So like and you notice that very much in this scene where like Catra goes there and she's like, you know, oh, I came down here to gloat, I came down here to rub it in your face, and Shadow Weaver just really immediately turns that around on her, like, it doesn't even phase her, she's just like, oh, this is about Adora, isn't it? And Catcher just loses it for a second, because she's like, no, you can't turn this around on me, this is my moment of triumph, I'm doing better than you ever could, you know, and she gets thrown off really hard by like how unfazed by the whole affair shadow weaver is and you know she you know she ends it like oh you know i really needed this this was really good for me but it's like no 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 i don't think it was like we said in the email episode catra spends so much time in the series just kind of lying to herself and and just sort of ignoring any kind of emotional turmoil she might be feeling just to refocus herself on saying, no, this is good. I'm winning. I'm, I'm climbing up and this is a good thing that is happening to me right now. Yeah. And most of the time she is, uh, less than correct. We can say. Yeah. That's a diplomatic way of putting it. God. Um, and one last scene, they do capture one of these things alive, and Bo is is gonna dig into it here. Uh, he's he. I like the detail of him, you know, talking to the recorder and saying, "Well, I, I saw the the greatest scientist I ever knew do this, so I guess I'm gonna do this." Yeah, it's it was a cute. really really sweet little moment. Actually, I I love that comment. And this is finally the part where the the dramatic irony bomb hits. Um, that's been hanging over this series like the Sword of Damocles. Where everyone, le- or everyone will learn that Entrapta is indeed alive. Um, however, there is still another smaller Sword of Damocles hanging over that one, uh, which is Entrapta is there willingly. Yeah, but uh, they'll find that out later. I love a good dramatic irony bomb. That's always my favorite thing. Yeah, those are those are fun. The the uh the defeat in his voice, like the the regret and the like the sadness when he's like, Oh, that means we left her behind, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Again, to their credit though, like that girl looked like she died. She was engulfed head to toe. Yeah, she was engulfed head to toe in flames. There's like yeah, it was like engulfed head to toe in flames. The whole room was incinerated, and it was just dead silence afterwards. So we have a couple of questions for this episode. Uh, there's some more questions uh, through Twitter and through emails that we're going to discuss at a later date. But just to assure you, I read everything. I I read all the stuff we get. 
So I, I see everything. I, I see all. But there are some questions that are going to be better suited for later episodes for their full effectiveness. Yes. Um, rest assured, we will get to uh, we'll, we'll get to your question. It just might take a second. So let's start on a Curious Cat. This question is from an anonymous Curious Catra user who says... Uh, this is a two-pronged question. One, in the fight scene between Adora and Simulation Catra, Catra was incredibly flirty. Adora and Catra held hands for more than a second. Does Light Hope ship Catradora? Was this Light Hope's version of Catra or Adora's version of Catra? Hmm. That's it's a good question. I mean, does does Light Hope ship Catradora? I feel like probably no, considering what we saw in Promise, but you know, there's kind of a two wolves situation going on with her, so who's to say? And on the second part, I'm. I think I just. I, I, I was asking this earlier, actually. I think it's probably a mix of both, right? Because Light Hope does have a, quite a lot of data on Katra, um, but this was probably pulling more from Adora's vision of Katra, which perhaps explains why Katra was being so flirty and mean. Um, yeah yeah i think definitely a pretty solid portion of that was adora's own emotional state kind of leaking through the program a little bit uh here's the second question during the horde's fight training did akatra remove robot shira's heart uh yes she does and that is interesting when she like uh clambers up the robot that is sort of superimposed with Adora's image, um, we see that the kind of laser gun eye is like positioned over her heart, or rather under her heart, and Catra just kind of tears out a piece of it and drops it on the floor, and when you see it, it, it vaguely does kind of look like a heart. Like, it's kind of got the same shape, it's got some tubes coming out of it, it's got big old holes in it, yeah i mean it's kind of got that it's one of those more like ham-fisted symbolism moments like it's not super alluding to anything like that's very deep but like you know i'm gonna tear out your heart like you tore out mine kind of situation i like it i think it's a good touch but but yeah it is it is kind of like definitely like a like i was saying earlier it's very much like katra's cool and aloof and professionalist like air that she's putting on just shattering in this in the in the face of like having even the most baseline level of catharsis where she can like feel like she's inflicted some level of pain on adora um because of course she feels like she inflicted more uh pain on her than you know she could ever make up for Right. Sometimes you got to use these sort of thematic sledgehammers as a way to direct attention towards a character's arc, right? Because when you have a... It is a very sort of heavy-handed thing. It's not as heavy-handed as it could be, um, but it's certainly right up in your face. But those moments are, are sort of like, well, let's look at that a little bit closer then. Because, you know, all of, all of the actions these characters take tell us something about the character. Yeah, for sure, for sure. 
Um, we got another one here from an anonymous curious Catra user. Um, here in two parts. Hey, are you too familiar with the concept of a whipping boy? You can search for it easily, but in short, it's the practice of raising and educating a low-ranking child alongside a noble or royal child, encouraging them to bond, and then exclusively punishing the low-ranking one whenever either of them misbehaves. Is it just me, or did Shadow Weaver's upbringing and abuse of the girls kind of hinge on this concept? It would explain a lot about why she kept Catra around despite, despite loudly disapproving of her. What do you think? I mean, yeah. Like, basically hit the nail on the head. I mean, we, we talked about this, I think, a lot um, in the episode, Promise. Um, but yeah, largely that is the dynamic, right? Like, Catra exists in Shadow Weaver's kind of manipulation sphere as a way to control Adora, mostly. She is a bludgeon to hit Adora over the head with emotionally and kind of bend her in the in the shape that she wants her to be in. Right. I don't know if that was more um, purposeful on Shadow Weaver's part, but I think I don't think she encouraged them to bond, but she saw it happening and took advantage of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I don't I don't think that necessarily Shadow Weaver like had any intention of like them becoming best friends, but um, seeing that they were, you know, it, it kind of prevent it, yeah, it presented like a golden opportunity for her a little bit. All right. Moving over to Twitter here. Um, we've got a few here from uh, the first one here comes from Octopus in the Neighborhood at in Octopus on Twitter. Um, who said that this question would have been best for the beacon, but they've only recently caught up and they ask. So, what if Entrapta was so quick to assume she was abandoned and took it so personally was because she was abandoned by her parents? It would explain why we've never seen or heard about them. I mean, her biological parents, not the possible robot ones in the portrait. Hmm. That... That's a, that's a good question. We... We don't know practically anything about any of the parents other than like angela and shadow weaver we don't really know anything about like the previous alliance other than that it fell apart other than it fell apart i guess yeah it's just you know we know about glimmer's dad who uh bit the dust but like other than that we just don't know anything so i think it's entirely within the realm of possibility that entrapta like either was or feels like she was abandoned by her parents like it's possible like the abandonment wasn't intentional and that it was like an accidental or like casualties of war situation but it's something that is kind of hard to to pin down but i think as far as like a headcanon goes i think that fits pretty well right uh just another one on twitter this is a little bit more of a fun one uh, MJ Kun on Twitter asks, opinion question, what is your favorite of Bo's trick arrows? Hmm. There's a lot of good ones, right? Like, I think probably my favorite that, like, does stuff is the Sonic Arrow. I, I'm a sucker for, like, Sonic technology. I always think that's fun. Uh, don't, don't at me about that. I, I know. Um, but I think my favorite of all time is definitely uh the magnifying glass arrow that 
that is probably the funniest one uh, that ever happens. The magnifying glass arrow is very strong. I am pinning my hat on slime arrow. That is the heavy lifter of this show. Nothing gets done without that slime arrow. It's so useful. It's just funny to have an arrow filled with Nickelodeon gack for restraining purposes. It's 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 the be- it's the most versatile arrow. If I were to make a tier list of Bose trick arrows, that would be right up there on the top. Oh yeah, like as far as just like the best and most effective ones, slime is definitely like top tier. That's like that's the one if if this were if this were a MOBA, that's the thing you buy at the at the store. First thing. I don't play MOBAs. <laughs> just checking around. I think that does it for the questions tonight um before we head into the spoiler zone which is going to be a little bit lighter um this episode is just sort of setting up its own stuff it isn't necessarily tying into a lot of stuff down the line but there are still a couple of things that we can talk about before we do that though i'd just like to remind everyone that we have recently launched our patreon um we've got lots of fun goals you can look at uh once if we reach monthly uh income that we will start stuff like riffing old shira episodes uh doing sort of fan work roundups and showcases of fan art fan fiction amvs all that good stuff um and we have up there right now for three dollar patrons we have a little mini-sode, our first mini-sode, where we just kind of do She-Ra adjacent stuff. Uh, for this first one, we took Noelle Stevenson's old, like, retro She-Ra character quiz that they made for the crew before the announcement of the Netflix show. It's a fun little breezy uh, episode, and also you get to hear all of the swears uncensored. Yes, the all unglimmered um for the bonus episode so if if you're if you want to hear us with sailor mouths there you go that's that's your ticket to the to the gun show and every uh every other sunday we're going to be uploading episodes of our kipo in the age of wonder beasts and the owl house uh watch podcast respectively both pretty blind yeah, those those are gonna be pretty blind. Uh, this this week we're doing uh, the first Kipo cast. I am pretty excited for that. I don't know very much about the show, but um, I've heard it's pretty good. I've heard lots of good stuff about Kipo. I'm looking forward to it. I know lots of good stuff about the Owl House, and I'm also looking forward to that. Oh yeah, we've both been spoiled a little bit on on the Owl House. Really looking forward to uh, Grom Night. That'll be fun. Lots of fun stuff there. But yeah, if you can. Uh... If you want to, you can throw us some money and get some cool content in return. Um, But with that, I think we're about ready to head over to the spoiler zone, don't you think? I think so. For those of you who will not be joining us, we'll catch you next week. For those of you who are following us to the other side of the veil, see you there. See you there.
So, one of the things that this episode does sort of set up is uh, the eventual friendship between Entrapta and Hordak. Yes, we get the... We, we get the seeds uh, that are being sown a little bit. Like, um, Hordak is like... Entrapta is definitely the exact opposite of what you would think Hordak would be willing to tolerate. She is silly. She is all up in his stuff all the time. She is just... Um, she doesn't really listen to him. She's, like, insubordinate a little bit. Not, like, intentionally, but... Yeah, you'd think he'd have zero patience, but... He's very, very tolerant of her antics throughout this whole, like, kind of briefing that Catra is doing, I guess, where she's just sort of wandering around in the background and rummaging through stuff. Yeah, like, she's hopping around and, like, super bouncy and just all over the place, and he he doesn't even, like, he doesn't grimace, he doesn't, like, get angry, and, I mean... For him, that's basically, like, a giant smile on his face, more or less. Like, he just kind of has a neutral expression the whole time. Like, he's bemused. And, I don't know, it's, like, it's very fun seeing him just, like, encounter this person who normally he, like, wouldn't tolerate whatsoever. But because she's, like, kind of a kindred spirit a little bit, like, he's, like, willing to willing to listen to what she has to say. Because, of course, like, this is probably the first person that he has met on this whole planet that has like the technical understanding and like intelligence that he does more or less i mean i feel like there are other people who could compare like Bo certainly but like as far as people he's met you know this is the first right and i don't know if he would be i mean Bo is the charmer maybe he would be friends with hordak but we never really see them interact at all um no, and Trapta, he, uh, Hordak also has her kind of very goal-oriented, data-oriented mindset. Because um, he doesn't, we, we, we were talking about how he runs the Horde terribly. Like he's, a, he's a horrible boss. Uh, everything is super sloppy because he's so, so extremely focused on opening that portal. Yeah, he's very focused on the extremely technical aspect of the whole thing, and Again, his whole plan is basically to call Big Brother and ask him to come help him out. You know, that's kind of his whole thing. And, you know, as we see later on in, the, in this season, I think the Entrapta and Hordak friendship blossoming is probably my favorite part of season two and three. Like, other than the Huntara episodes, which are uh, just fantastic, their friendship is just so good like the episodes where they really start to connect and hordak starts to like open up to her are so good to me i love when moody like grumpy evil villains start to soften a little bit yeah like this incredibly grumpy gruff like goth man just like he starts to he starts to really open up a little bit and become like a little bit less of a heartless it's 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 fun it's fun to watch i definitely like the entrapped friendship i think it's a very fun one um i think you know, we can oh go ahead i was gonna say i think that like i think a lot of people got really put off by the entrapped friendship because like there's there's the there's always the 
you know, opportunity for, like, giving, giving a very evil character, like, more forgiveness or, like, affection than they're necessarily, like, deserving of, but I think largely, like, I think largely they, they don't ever overstep that. I feel like Hordak is definitely, like, a character who's, like, and we've talked about this before, he's kind of a kid trying to play Emperor Napoleon a little bit. Um, once, yeah, once you learn what's really going on with him, it's really hard to view him as anything else other than a tragic figure. Like, yeah, he's done a lot of crappy stuff. He's hurt a lot of people, but also he's he never really had a lot in life at all. No, and he doesn't really know uh, very much either. Like, I think that, again, there's like a fine line you have to toe between like a character who's definitely like a monster and like trying to trying to make sure that they don't like get off with a get out of jail free card um i think i think largely they avoid that because like even at the very 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 end like nobody really likes hordak like nobody wants to hang out with him nobody wants to be around him the only person who really cares is um entrapta and like he can change that he can work on that i think this shows philosophy towards what redemption means is really good because ultimately what it comes right down to at the end of season five is if they want to change then they should be able to do that it's up to everyone else if they want to forgive them or not but if they want the like if they have the capacity for growth they should be allowed to do that yeah and i i like generally the way the show approaches that um how it's just like yeah they're given the space um to be allowed to change on their own but nobody's forced to give up their space for them no one's forced to to forgive them like i don't think that there's there's any characters that that feel like they've been forgiven in a in a way that is total or complete i don't think anyone completely forgives katra um, I don't think anyone completely forgives Shadow Weaver. In fact, I don't think anyone really forgives anything Shadow Weaver so, did. So, I want to talk about her, actually, and that'll, that'll sort of segue into our next thing here, because I did want to talk about Shadow Weaver and what this episode kind of puts in as her new status quo, but also Shadow Weaver is, like, the example of that philosophy not being extended to her, because guess what? She doesn't change. She never wants to change. Throughout this whole show, she's the same person. She is always manipulating. She is always insulting people. She is always trying to gain her own power until literally the very end. Shadow Weaver is not someone who can be redeemed because she doesn't want to be. She doesn't feel like she needs to be. Exactly. She doesn't feel like she needs to be redeemed. She thinks that she is more or less the hero of the story, or if not the hero, she thinks she is the protagonist of the story. She, like... Even when she does finally, you know, in that in her very last moment, she takes off the mask and she reveals her emotional core and she, like, is actually performing self-sacrifice um, for once. Even in that very moment, she still has to get, like, one, just one last jab in. Just one last, like, you know, you know, you're welcome. I I did this. I made this happen. It was me. And it's like, it really wasn't, but thanks. 
Right. And uh, the the thing that this episode sets up is that she is almost entirely like powerless uh, from this point on. Maybe not or like extremely powerless compared to her former self. Um, she can still do magic. She still has spells, but she's not going to be doing the stuff she was doing in season one. She doesn't have the big evil spooky hair. It's always down. She is like a prisoner for most of season two and three um and technically most of season four and yet she's still able to do all the things she wants to do because her true strength was never her magical prowess it was her manipulation exactly she's she's always she's always weaving those shadows and uh i just think it's such a fascinating place to put her as put her as a character um, especially as we move into season four, where she's working Glimmer and like trying to get her to do what she wants, and even like the the latter half of season five, where she's still doing it, still doing the same stuff to Adora, like she doesn't change at all, not an inch, not an ounce. No, she is not. She is not budging, not for a second. And it's it's interesting watching everyone else grow around her, and she stays very stagnant. Like she's, I feel like she's one of the very few characters that stays completely stagnant um, in the series, and at least in her in her emotional growth as a person. Um, and everyone kind of leaves her behind um, to the point that like she spends most of the show um, just manipulating and cloying um, and and pulling and pushing all of these people and their relationships um until eventually at the very end nobody is willing to listen to her anymore everyone's gotten completely sick of her nonsense like everyone can see through it like all the way like right at the end right during i th- i think during failsafe i'm pretty sure it was failsafe um when you know everyone's like what why don't you want to go get it you know, and everyone's realizing that, like, once again, she's manipulated the whole the whole crew, and they're just completely done with it. Yeah, and the next time we see her in the heart part one, we just find her back at their base drinking wine alone. And immediately when Catra comes and she just starts insulting her, it it's kind of remarkable how little she changes, honestly. Yeah, she like she is bound and determined not to change as a person. And listen, if that ain't a mom behavior, I don't know what is. Damn, it's true. Um, to finish this off, let's talk a little bit about Catra's arc because this is kind of where uh, she starts rolling down the hill. It's like, it's a, it's a stroll right now. It's like a, it's just sort of a meander uh, down a hill, but. Yeah. As things go on in this season uh, three and four, like the, that meander will become a roll, will become just sort of a death dive into complete self-destruction by the end of season four. It's, uh, it's, you see it so much clearer upon rewatch, just how bad she is already. Like, she doesn't have any healthy emotional coping mechanisms at all she's constantly lying to herself about what she wants and it just gets worse and worse she like destroys all of her support structures she gains new extremely unhealthy ones and those eventually let her down too 
And that's where we get her at the end of season four, where she's defeated Hordak. She's just sitting in the wreckage of the forge, and Glimmer has her staff pointed at her, and she just says, do it. Just vaporize me, man. I don't care anymore. Yeah, like, God. God, the the Catra death spiral is... It's so much. It's so much. It's really, I think, one of the strongest, like, thematic arcs in the whole show they dedicate an enormous amount of time to it and i mean they really knock it out of the park like this is this is the i wouldn't call this the first seeds of it i think the first seeds were probably planted in promise but like this is really the first time that we see her like she's stepping up to the plate and she's trying to fill like these these shoes that she has pulled off the shelf for herself and um they don't fit um she's trying but they don't fit and you know she's she is already falling apart at the seams like she's trying to hold it together but like every single thing that uh, it involves adora or shadow weaver is just tearing her to pieces and she's trying as hard as she can but she does not take failure very well and every time there's a setback or they lose a fight, she feels every every square inch of that right in the chest. And yeah, that's gonna start taking a toll really quickly. It's uh it's kinda it's almost the core of the show. It's certainly the core of one half of the show. She is the prote- she is the other protagonist. She's like this this show has two leads, she's one of them, and this is her arc. And it mm. is really, really good. I cannot wait to talk about season four. I've I have espoused my love of that season all over this podcast. It's got double trouble in it. It's got so much good stuff in it. Oh, I can't um, wait till we get to double trouble. I love double trouble. They're like honestly, I think they are my favorite side character. They're so much fun. Um but yeah, we'll get there when we get there. We gotta get through season two first. Um, and next week, we have what I think is probably my favorite episode of season two. Uh, the Ties That Bind, or Catra is a Complete Nightmare. Yes, uh, Catra's fun, fun day. Yeah, that's, that is, ugh, that's such a good episode. Uh, I can't wait to just watch Catra terrorize Bo and Glimmer for like 25 minutes. If you want good Catra faces, some good smug Catra action, it's all over that episode. It is like 45% of that episode's screen time is just her making smug faces. Yes. It's, ooh, can't wait to get to those faces. But until then, uh, that'll be it for this week. Uh, I'm pretty sure these first few episodes of season two are going to be a little bit lighter, a little bit shorter, especially episode three, probably, because one half of that episode is just straight filler. We'll have a lot to talk about that uh, in a moment or in a few weeks. Yeah. But uh, until then, I have been one of your hosts, Nero. And I've been the other host, Jane. And we'll see you on the other side of Podcast Spondos.